musical, linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, in case you've been thinking that uh, maybe something's wrong with your iTunes listing of podcasts from the salon, uh, since it's been three weeks since my last podcast, well, there's nothing wrong with your connection. I've uh, just been away for a bit, trying to come up with some uh, new dream schemes and adventures, uh, all of which I'll have more to say about in some future podcasts. But right now, uh, I want to thank two of our fellow saloners who didn't take three weeks off like I did, but instead sent us some of their uh, hard-earned cash to help with the expenses here in the salon. And those wonderful people are Forrestar, uh, who also wrote to say, Thanks for the podcast. It gladdens my heart to know that there are hopefully more psychedelic-based people out there than I originally thought, although I'm having a difficult time finding a new tribe in my new home here in Berkeley. Thanks again, Forrest. And you know, it's it's really a shame that it's so difficult to uh, find the others in a city like Berkeley, where there must be uh, more psychedelic people per capita than anywhere else in the world. So uh, don't give up hope, Forrest. Our other donor is my longtime friend, Margaret W. And uh, Margaret, just last week I was uh, just reminiscing with our mutual friends, Ron and Claudia Little, uh, who, by the way, I featured in podcast number 218, and uh, we were talking about some of our adventures together with you, but uh, I'll save those stories for a less public venue. Anyway, Margaret and Forrest, uh, hey, thanks again for your support of the salon. We uh, certainly wouldn't be here without you and all of our other donors, supporters, uh, and you very kind souls who bought a copy of my pay-what-you-can novel, The Genesis Generation. Now, uh, if you remember where we left off, we had a kind of a long run of Terrence McKenna talks, uh, followed by my last podcast, uh, which mainly featured Ramdas. So uh, today I'm going to play another talk by Timothy Leary, and uh, then my next podcast uh, next week will feature one of the talks that Bruce Damer gave in the uh, UK this past summer. And following that, uh, well, <laughs> I really want to hear another talk from this uh, big box of uh, as yet unheard, at least for me, unheard Terrence McKenna workshops. In fact, uh, I even picked up a couple more on my recent trip. But right now I want to uh, pass along an interesting Tim Leary talk that I found. After sorting through several tapes from the Timothy Leary archive uh, that were sent to me by Dennis Berry and Bruce Damer, and uh, by the way, thanks again to both of you, I found a recording of a talk that Dr. Leary gave in Santa Barbara, California on the uh, 28th of January in 1985. According to the notes made by Rene, who helped digitize this material, the title on the tape was From Mind to Supermind, The Next Steps. And once again, we hear how wonderfully optimistic Dr. Leary was at a time when uh, we were only just uh, 15 years short of the new millennium, or uh, 25 years ago, if you prefer. Although we now can see how hopelessly naive he was at the time, I still find his uh, youth-filled, optimistic enthusiasm quite refreshing. And uh, I've also left in his 1985 description of the potential of the personal computer, which uh, you may find to be somewhat naive and simple, but 
If you Google 1985 personal computer technology or something like that, you'll uh, quickly discover that the World Wide Web wasn't even on the radar screen back there. A lot of uh, technological ground has been covered in the past 25 years, and uh, I think it speaks well of Dr. Leary to be so enthusiastic about it, considering how primitive the tech was at the time. And while we've heard his time travel story about the uh, westward migration to the California coast a couple of times before, I'm uh, playing it once again to honor my own ancestors uh, who began our family's westward migration from Germany and Ireland and which ended with me sitting here on a hillside looking over the Pacific Ocean. So uh, please don't take offense if you live east of here. Uh, After all, it's only a metaphor. And better yet, why don't you just pull up stakes and move out here yourself? How could uh, that be any more difficult than staying where you are right now? (laughs) I guess I'd better get off this soapbox here. I don't really know where all that came from. I'm probably just trying to rationalize my own decisions. But the truth is that uh, life is exceedingly different out here on the West Coast than it was for me in other parts of the country that I've lived in. And that includes the Midwest, the East Coast, the Deep South, and even Texas, where uh, I practice law for a while. So I have given a few other areas a close look, but what's different out here on the coast is that uh, I can be as eccentric as I know how to be, and uh, nobody even notices. Of course, uh, (laughs) I'm a rather conservative freak now that I uh, think about it. But enough of me. Let's uh, now join the audience on a... January day in 1985 in Santa Barbara, California, just as Dr. Timothy Leary is being introduced by an obvious admirer. After dinner with this gracious gentleman, it's an honor to introduce someone with an abundant personality and ample intelligence to go around several times, Dr. Timothy Leary. I'm very happy to be here. I think that this is the right place and the right time to boldly and intelligently and wisely move into the future. It's a very special place and a very special time for all of us. The place, of course, is good old... United States of America for the last 200 some odd years it has been the ideal of freedom and innovation and pluralistic thinking I went to Europe a couple of years ago and talked to people and uh, have the pleasure of meeting many international visitors in the LA area and it's clear to me and I'm sure you'll resonate in agreement when I say that America today is still the hope of the world it still represents the ideal of the future of progress of evolution but on top of that we're lucky enough to be in California I have uh, done a study of a profound mystical science called 
uh, neurogeography. You like that one? <laughs> Which uh, I try to demonstrate uh, using demographics that for the last 4,000 years, human intelligence, uh, human vigor, human courage, human individuality uh, has been moving an unbroken line from east to west. You know, Asia, the Middle East, and then Athens, and Italian Renaissance, France, England, East Coast United States. Uh, to make this point, I sometimes uh, like to think that when you consult a map um, and you see the so-called uh, Greenwich lines, you know, denoting the time zones, Pacific time, mountain time, central time, my friends, I submit that these are not hours, but centuries that are being delimited. And when I go back east, <laughs> uh, I consider time travel. <laughs> Washington, B.C., for example. <laughs> um, some of my more Kabbalistic demograph demographers and neurogeographers like to say that your zip code or, or your area code and your first three digits probably tell more about you than uh, you'd ever dream. So much for place. Now, time. Uh, obviously, what a wonderful time to be alive. The last uh, 15 years of this extraordinary, volatile 20th century. Boy, what a century it's been, huh? And it's been, it hasn't quit. As a matter of fact, uh, to quote uh, one of our more popular Americans, it's hard, it ain't got started yet. Uh, and the next 15 years that are going to soar us, launch us in the 21st century, are going to be, I'm sure, I don't want to be advocating anything that I don't believe in here, I'm sure it's going to be um, the most exciting time of all. Now, more changes have taken place in the last 25 years, unquestionably, than in any period of human history. A decade, just as I said, an hour on the, the Greenwich map is a century. A decade these days seems to be a century. Can you remember the ancient history of the 1960s? Can you do me remember back in the you know, kind of the uh, Werner Erhardt uh, new generation 70s? It does from the exalted uh, altitude of the 80s. They seem. Uh, long, far away decades. Now, so much is happening, and has happened, is going to happen, that sometimes we all get a little freaked when uh, we're moving from one culture, from one uh, or more uh, cognitive maps or, or models. Everything seems to be up for grab. Uh, that's when the 20th century started with uh, quantum physics and, and uh, Einstein, and it's been accelerating. At times of great change like this, when there doesn't seem to be uh, solidities that we had before, many of us often get quite upset. So I think that one thing I'd like to uh, suggest tonight is uh, as we move into the next 15 years, into the 21st century, it's going to be the better part of wisdom to be kind to each other because no one really knows where it's going. I mean, could you have predicted Four years ago, it's happening today. I couldn't. And I consider myself a, you know, try to be a futurist. 
Now, one title that I considered for my talk tonight has something to do with the evolution of intelligence in individuals and species. I thought about talking, titling my talk, High Technology, but I thought that might be misunderstood. <laughs> so I'm going to stick with uh, the evolution of intelligence in uh, individuals and species. Now, these are four very hot and controversial concepts. Evolution, intelligence, individual, species. Um, very important, very important concepts because I submit your theory of intelligence is your game plan for your life. It's your blueprint as to where you're going, where you think you came from, and what the guideposts are. Now, the notion of the evolution of intelligence, again, is controversial. Uh, until very recently, the notion that intelligence could evolve, or that intelligence could evolve in individuals would be considered quite, uh, quite extraordinary. I was trained as a psychologist uh, 20, 25 years ago, and if anyone's intelligence score changed, well, something wrong with a test, or maybe the person was cheating. The idea was you were stuck with an IQ, and if you tried to change it, you, know, you were kind of breaking the rules. And of course, the notion of uh, an individual evolving, again, uh, is a notion that, uh, although it's very ancient and has been passed on by the oral tradition from master to student for several thousand years, the notion of individual growth and personal evolution kind of caught us a little by surprise in the busy West, as you know, a couple of decades ago. Now, I'm going to cover a lot of territory tonight. I hope to spray you and ricochet you and uh, uh, avalanche you with new ideas and new models and new metaphors and hopefully a few uh, new good stories. Uh, now, if I seem to ramble, <laughs> uh, well, I admit to, you know, brain damage. Uh, I started out with a hundred billion neurons, <laughs> most of which I haven't learned to use yet. And I think about pruning down a little bit, uh, but uh, I'm not rambling. Every metaphor, every fact. Is part of a mathematical mosaic. And to give you a little picture of how this is going to unfold, I'm going to, to rely upon a, a wonderful cliche, a very utilitarian model that's very uh, chic right now. It's this notion that we're moving into what's called the information society, the age of intelligence, the age of, uh, of uh, communication, and that we've just left, or we're leaving, some of us are at least, or some of us have been expelled from, <laughs> The, the industrial society, the smokestack uh, economy, and that um, this, of course, was preceded by the, the feudal or the agricultural uh, age. Now, like any 
three-part division of everything, this sort of little model is useful, but it's also dangerous. So let's be, we're not going to get carried away by it. But I'd like to very briefly review for you the different theories of the evolution of intelligence in the individual in the last three stages of human evolution. Okay. Now, you remember that under feudalism, there was no concept of evolution. God made it bang, one swell swoop. Uh, there's no talk about intelligence under feudalism because uh, God is the author of, of uh, everything that has to be said. And uh, there's certainly no uh, concept of the individual under feudalism. As you know, in a feudal society, uh, we are all part of a flock or of a, of a con collection that is um, uh, guided by uh, a supernatural power. Okay, now, there was no concept of intelligence under feudalism. The, uh, in a feudal society, there's one mainframe, knowledge information processor in any village or town, and that tends to be in the palace of the, of the duke or the cardinal. And uh, the access to this mainframe, illuminated manuscript, of course, was reserved to socially alienated nerds called monks who spoke the machine language, which was Latin. And uh, indeed, if any of us tried to write or even to change, or even, even if a, a clerk or a scribe or a monk changed, either by accident or by deliberation, one word, oh, it was uh, considered heresy because uh, uh, you're changing the divine writ. Now, it will come as no surprise to you in a sophisticated place like Santa Barbara when I tell you that um, there are probably more people in the world today who are committed to a fundamentalist, feudal philosophy and religious orientation by far. I think there are more than uh, any other theory. Um, is fundamentalist Islam is making a tremendous resurgence, as we all well know. And uh, the word Islam means submission. And uh, recently, some Iranian friends of mine told me that um, in, in Iran, the Ayatollah Khomeini has just come out with a new book. Now, it's not a new book. It's an old book, and they pasted his name on it. And it tells you uh, how to live your life from moment to moment, which hand to use in the normal biological functions of, uh, of daily life, uh, how to enter a room, uh, which uh, foot to put forward, and of course, the relationships between um, uh, individuals and society, between men and women, are highly, highly uh, orchestrated and uh, surrounded with, with regulation. Now, the, uh, in this country, there are millions of people who believe in the total authenticity of the Bible. Fundamentalists who truly believe that every word in the Bible is the word of God. Now, I don't agree with this, but I have to accept the fact that there are probably 30, 40, 50 million Americans who are sharing this wonderful country with me, and um, 
So with great respect, I have to understand uh, their position. They're not going to go away. I'm not going to go away. Um, I, I think, though, that in the context of this little evolutionary trip we're taking tonight, we should remember that in the, the theory of evolution, theory of intelligence, theory of individual, in the fundamentalist version of the Bible, is that there was an evolution, it was all started, well, Bishop Usher, didn't Bishop Usher say that it was all done in the year 4006 B.C. at 9 o'clock in the morning, sometime in June? Uh, and the universe and the stars and the planet Earth and the oceans and the land and the creepy crawly things were created by one fiat, by Jehovah. Jehovah made the ultimate destination resort called the Garden of Eden. And uh, you remember how it goes. Essentially, and I'm paraphrasing here, which could be called heresy, <laughs> that uh, Adam, uh, I've made this Garden of Eden for you. Go for it. I've made Eve to serve you. <clears throat> Go for it. Do anything you want, except there are two food and drug regulations. <laughs> See this tree. This is the tree. Now, I'd like you to listen to this. This is the tree of knowledge. And the fruit thereof is a controlled substance. And you are forbidden to in any way ingest of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, lest the blinds fall from your eyes, you see the good and evil and become a god like me. You don't want to do that. And Adam said, no, sir. <laughs> this tree here is the tree of recombinant DNA, life extension. Was it Dr. Peltier that uh, discussed this? Uh, <laughs> um, Cloning, <laughs> protein diets. Uh, now, this is the tree of mortality, and you're forbidden to eat of this lest you become immortal. Now, the concept of original sin, of course, derived from the heretical step was taken by Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. Now, this is very relevant to the topic I'm going to discuss tonight, which is the evolution of intelligence. Uh, I must tell you right in front that I consider myself a secular humanist. Uh, as a humanist, I believe that there's extraordinary untapped divinity or potential in every human being, and uh, taking the Socratic or even the Oriental position that the aim of human life is to access or activate or boot up this... Uh, sense of inner intelligence and inner virtue and inner uh, power. So I'm glad as a humanist to glorify Adam and Eve. I'm proud to be descended from a species, the first members of whom were a man and a woman, who stood up and ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. Now, of course, they tend to blame poor Eve for this. 
had known for Eve that straight out of Adam would probably be still there in Garden of Eden. <laughs> but uh, I'm rather proud to be descended from Eve and her friend Adam. <clears throat> now, we can't date the onset of, uh, of the feudal religions. We suspect that they started at that wonderful time in human history when a new technology had developed called the domestication of animals. But uh, probably 25,000 years ago. But we can date with precision the onset of the next stage of human growth, evolution. Uh, when the Industrial Age began, it was the year 1456. That was the year, as you probably know, when Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press, which made possible the portable, home, inexpensive micro book. Now, when Gutenberg invented the micro book, um, I imagine, and looking over history, there's some evidence for my speculation that top management was very pleased with Gutenberg's invention. It was fabulous to have a printing press. You could take the Bible and you could print it in thousands of copies and send it to all the branch offices all over Europe. Um, the uh, first four uses of the printing press were um, word processing. Scribes loved it. Um, spreadsheets, counting sheets. That was good for the taxpayers and the the treasury checker. The third use of Gutenberg's printing press was in um, database, the archivist, the scribes, the history of the kingdom. And the fourth was telecommunications. You could send the stuff all over the uh, kingdom or the, or the Holy Roman Empire. I suspect that top management back in those days didn't realize that if you allowed human beings to have in their own home small microbooks you might dramatically, almost instantly, change human nature. Indeed, that's what many of us think happened. The, um, there are two interesting aspects, very relevant to today's high technological society, uh, buried in the history of the printing press. See, what language, if the average person was going to read and write the Bible, it couldn't be in Latin because Latin was the was the machine language, so it had to be translated into the language of the people. Uh, perhaps you don't remember that Luther translated the Bible into the folk language, and Luther faced this problem. There were 19 dialects of German in what's now the German linguistic area: uh, High Dutch, Low Dutch, Saxon, Bavarian. Uh, Luther had to decide which language to translate the Bible in. He decided on the dialect of the court of Saxony because that was his, that was his um, patron. And that one single decision created the German language, created the German culture, created the so-called German soul. And as uh, von Herder has said, the, the soul of Germany is in that language. Same thing happened in England. When Caxton wanted to translate the first book into English, Every county in England had its own dialect. Matter of fact, in the uh, late 15th, 16th century, there were over 3,000 major dialects in Europe, and they still are, as a matter of fact. In England, 
one uh, dialect per county, what are they going to do? A housewife in Kent, we're told, couldn't understand a businessman from London unless they spoke Latin, which was the church language, or French, which was the language of the aristocracy. So Caxton decided to use the language of the London court, which created the English language, which then, within a century, created uh, that credible uh, monument, that uh, mountain of, of, uh, of human intelligence, the, the, the English literature, it created Shakespeare. So we now have situations in the late 19th uh, and even the mid-20th and late 20th century, there are certainly uh, probably around a billion people in this planet who speak English, not as well as Richard Burton, all because of a decision made by Caxton. Uh, and he could have chosen French, which would have been the popular conservative Tory thing to do, and would be speaking, Richard Burton would be speaking French. Now, another implication of the printing press is this. The, once you learned how to read, you could write. Now, remember, under feudalism, you ain't supposed to write. There's only one author. Matter of fact, uh, the second commandment says, uh, thou shalt not have graven images. And uh, the first commandment says, thou shalt not have any author. There's strict copyright going there. <laughs> Who was the first person to sit down and say, hey, I can use this new technology to create my own ideas. We know about the Gutenberg Bible, but we don't know who that first or who that, it probably happened all over the year, because when it says, uh, Buckminster Fuller, my great teacher and uh, you know, seer, once said, uh, when it's backbone time, it backbones, and when it's... Um, Steamboat time at steamboats, and uh, when it was time to start writing books, it happened, I'm sure, all over Europe. But certainly, we know that within one generation, there were something like 20 million books in Europe. That's staggering. That is really instant mutation in human intelligence. Um, from this new technology, the micro book, came not just reading and writing and literacy, came freedom of thought. Immediately, the um, Protestant Reformation, people sitting down and making their own interpretations of the Bible, uh, immediately led to um, science, the Renaissance, the return of the Athenian humanism. It led to the rights of man and woman. It led to eventually the Declaration of Independence in this country. It led to technology. It led to the Industrial Revolution because the book, by definition, was the first manufactured object. Crank them out, crank them out, crank them out. And then we got uh, the basic factory, smokestack, assembly line, culture that we've all grown up in. Now, at every stage of human evolution, there's a new concept of evolution. The theory of evolution that developed in the industrial society is rather amusing. It, it's so predictable and so understandable. At the height of the British Empire 100 years ago, Fellows like Darwin came along, and uh, they knew exactly uh, uh, what evolution was all about. Uh, God was, uh, well, there was no, they didn't want any kind of a personal God. They didn't want a plan. They didn't want any sort of a, uh, peevish deity interfering with human affairs. They said there's no, you know, the universe is a big machine. God is probably a big clock maker up there. And uh, it's all mechanical chance. Uh, survival of the fittest, people eating, this big eat the small, and uh, it just grinds out. Uh, uh, 
You know, the, the until very recently, we were told that life on this planet wasn't created by God. It was no act of creation at all. It was, a, it was, a, it was an accident. Uh, something like this. Uh, long time ago, boys and girls, about four and a half billion years ago, in the pre-Cambrian slime on a Saturday night, there was some ammonia molecules out of your party with some methane molecules, and they um, invited us some hydrogen boys and oxygen girls, and terrible thing happened. The place got hit by lightning, and they all began to reproduce. <laughs> uh, Uri and Miller in Chicago uh, re replicated this experiment. They passed uh, uh, electricity through uh, prebiotic uh, chemicals and then did indeed create uh, some of the proteins that were precursors to life. Uh, but come to think of it, this Darwinian theory of evolution, you know, it, it's, not very, it's not very inspiring. It doesn't make me feel, you know, I want to throw back my shoulders and zoom into the 21st century. It's all an accident. Four and a half billion years of accidents, accidents, building bigger and stronger rapists. I mean, uh, also, I find very insulting the, the theory that I was taught, and I, still excellent some of our biology uh, courses today, how you and I were conceived. According to the, the neo-Darwinian theory, um, you and I were conceived when your father deposited 400,000 spermatozoa into your mother's reproductive tract. I submit the word reproductive. How smokestack, huh? I mean, I don't consider I was reproduced or produced. I, I like to think that I was created, and I'm sure you were too. I much prefer the notion of uh, my father uh, putting four or five hundred thousand sperm into my mother's recreational tract. Yeah. Uh, then, of course, according to Orthodox theory, bang, started the biggest Mark Spitz swimming race in history, 500,000 spermatozoa doing the Australian crawl, bigger, get out of the way, man, there's an enormous male macho, you know, playing fields of eating, right? You, you train your kids, you, they, you know, you're born in a factory, and you're, you, the old, uh, before, uh, until recently, you were fed on uh, factory hours, and you went to a school like a factory, and your function was to produce and perform for the factory society, and you called yourself, identified yourself by your role, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a mechanic, I'm a UAW worker, in terms of how you fit, and of course you had to be replicable, dependable, loyal, prompt, on and on and on. Now, we can date the beginning of the so-called new age, the post-industrial age, again very precisely. I submit to you it happened in 1946. 1946 is a magical, magical year. 1946 is the end of World War II. It was the year of Hiroshima Nagasaki, which meant there could never be another world war, or there would be just one more world war. 1946, uh, being the end of World War II, meant that all those wonderful new electronic toys that had developed, like radar and sonar, and the first computers which are used for bomb sites, could now be turned over to the civilian population. 
1946 was another magical year because in that very year, something happened that still nobody can figure out. The birth rate in Australia, American, uh, Canada, and New Zealand doubled. Now, you know, you just don't screw around with birth rates, if you pardon the expression. Uh, you know, doubling a birth rate means that millions and millions of people are somehow having the same procreative impulse at that same time. Everyone thought, see, all the evidence was in industrial societies, birth rate drops. They thought right after World War II, bing, bang, after the guys came home and so forth, uh, down the little bump that they expected, it would continue to go down. Instead of 36 million, you got 76 million Americans born between the years 1946 and 64. It's called the baby boom. It's called the pig and the python, moving across the American 20th century like an enormous pig and a python. This avalanche of 76 million the babies, children, teenagers, college kids, <laughs> yippies, yuppies. <laughs> um, now, another thing happened in 1946, which is uh, extremely interesting. In that year, the Bible of the information age was written. Uh, the Bible of the earlier age, of course, is, is the various Bibles. The Bible of the industrial age probably would be uh, Newton's Principia. I don't know. You might say it's Henry Ford's manual for a Model T Ford. I don't know. Um, the Bible of the information age was written in 1946 and was entitled very shrewdly and obviously, looking back, it was entitled the Common Sense Book of Baby and Child Care, written by Dr. Benjamin Spock, who has been blamed by many conservatives for causing all this trouble. I'm glad to see someone else get the blame. <laughs> and the credit. <clears throat> Dr. Spock did something really profound. He maybe didn't know. I mean, uh, maybe he was just playing a part. Uh, he was just the person that enunciated this new doctrine. But he did something, think about it, that is obviously going to change human nature and culture. If you change the techniques of child rearing, if you change the very philosophy and techniques, the daily, moment-to-moment -moment, uh, way that children are brought up, hey, listen. Never mind university. You've changed that culture. Now, what Spock did, as you well know, had never been done, to my knowledge, in human history. He said to parents, and I was one of them. We read it like a Bible. We call it the Bible. He said, treat your kids as individuals. Ooh. I mean, Never in Adam biological history or human history, one thing that everyone agreed upon, you know, the kids have to be trained and have to be, uh, no matter what you have to do, you have to get them to learn how to play the game, whether it's uh, spinning webs or whether it's uh, making nests or whether it's, uh, uh, you know, performing in a factory. Spock uh, said, uh, feed them on demand. Don't feed them according to schedule. Now that right away, you see, was setting the... The industrial society can't work that way. You know, you've got to feed. You can't feed people in an industrial society on demand. You have to have your kids wake them up, feed them at 12, feed them at 8, feed them at 4. Listen, you can't have a situation in which there's an assembly line, and at 11.02, I say, well, baby, I'm going to break now for lunch. Say, I'll be back in three hours, man. <laughs> you've got to eat when you're, you know, when the bell rings, just like Pavlov's uh, uh, conditioned uh, rats. You've got to come back, you know, to belabor the point. Another thing happened, see, 
to this new generation that came along in 1946. Never happened in human history before. From the time this generation climbed out of the cribs and crawled across the nursery with their little tiny chubby baby hands, they began dialing and doing the boob tube. <gasps> that meant that the average post-1946 kid, by the age of five, had experienced a hundred times more realities, more dramas, more history, more geography, more hype, more propaganda, you knew it than the wisest, oldest, most traveled human beings in the past, because through elect electrons, electronic, doo -doo 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 -doo, change channels, uh, which of course had the same effect that Gutenberg's book had on human nature. See, none of us really realized that when we had our kids watching screens in which there were cloud clusters and vapor trails of electrons and changing and out of focus and pulling in and throwing little color and we never really thought, oh, they're going to, they were watching little, um, you know, uh, little dramas like the dramas that used to be on the movies or instead of watching movies, really, just like a movie. And uh, the um, hucksters on TV were just like the old snake oil salesman, hey, come on, uh, uh, Pepsi-Cola for you and uh, uh, Breakfast of Champions for you because you're a champion kid. We, we, it's all for you, baby. So come on. Uh, American society is here to go for it because you're perfect. You're on, on. We never realized that we were really uh, creating a new literacy, which uh, we can now call electronic literacy. Or we're creating a new means of, uh, of intelligent communication, a new way of booting up or activating the human brain, which we will call the, the electronic literacy. Now, another date which is very important, I think, in the evolution of human intelligence and in the evolution of all of our lives in the next 15, 20 years, 1976. My gosh, that's only nine years ago. 1976, two hippies, long-haired hippies. I mean, who can imagine hippies? In a garage in Silicon Valley, south of San Francisco, did the old Gutenberg turn. They invented the personal computer. <laughs> uh, my, uh, you, could, you could take it home, yeah. Uh, now, there, were, there was an Altair and there were personal computers before, but no, it was Jobs, St. Stephen I and St. Stephen II, Jobs and Wozniak, who put this package together and they called it, and isn't it interesting, they called it the Apple. <laughs> with a bite out of it. <laughs> I got a 11-year-old kid who was, of course, totally hooked on electrons. <laughs> Between the Apple and MTV, my God. <laughs> anyway, the joke around his school is, uh, I think I can tell it here. <laughs> if the 11 years old are telling us, we can tell it here, right? <laughs> That, uh, who was the first human being to have a computer? That uh, Eve, how come? Well, she had an apple and a wang. Okay. Uh, now, I cite that as an I know. I'm glad you're getting rowdy here. I love rowdy crowds. I'm getting, I'm getting you ready for the question and answer period. <laughs> um, the, uh, remember, top management after Gutenberg thought, hey, the 
The computer is wonderful. Personal computers are wonderful for top manager. The word processing, isn't that great? We're speeding typing. Uh, spreadsheets, that's great. We can balance your checkbook. <laughs> I don't know why you want to do that in electrons, but uh, uh, you have uh, databases and all that. Uh, and games. It's true. One of the first books, the second book printed in English by Caxton was um, How to Play Chess. Uh, for those of you uh, who don't know much about chess, chess is an early form of Pac-Man. Got it? Got it. <laughs> Uh, so you had games. And just as I pose the question, uh, or pose the historical precedent, that it took some time for people to figure out that, that micro books after Gutenberg were going to start people thinking, creating a new literacy, creating a literacy of the people, creating a literacy which created nationalism, really, uh, uh, English and German and uh, Italian. Um, the same thing is going to happen again uh, with the use of electronic language. Now, to understand electronic literacy, or to understand the electronic human being, I'm forced to do this reluctantly. I'm going to have to violate a taboo. I'm going to have to talk about something that you're really not supposed to talk about these days. I'm going to talk about that ultimate organ of elegance, pleasure, and revelation, the human brain. <clears throat> Hope you're ready for that. You know, 100 years ago in, in Victorian Vienna or in Victorian England or Freudian Vienna, the body was the taboo. You couldn't, you know, you simply couldn't talk about the body. Talk about a lady's uh, lower extremities. The word leg was going <clears> to... <throat> And uh, there has been, and there still is, a taboo about really understanding what the human brain is. Uh, uh, you know, you're not supposed to fondle your brain or touch it or play with it or abuse it in any way. Or hair will grow in your palms and you'll end up at a mental hospital. Uh, the brain is off limits, my friend. Uh, but still, we're being avalanche by new scientific discoveries about the brain. Uh, a man that I respect very much named Douglas Hofstadter wrote the book Gödel Escherbach. How many of you know that book? It's about, yeah, it's an interesting book. Won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, it's called The New Definition of the Brain. He says the brain is best understood now. We, we always change our concepts of the human body and the human brain and human nature as new technologies come along. So a good way to think of the brain, the, the, the human brain is a constellation of around a hundred billion neurons. And each neuron, according to Hofstadter, and I've talked to other uh, electronic gurus, each neuron is about the equivalent of a microprocessor. So uh, when you get home tonight in the privacy of your own room, put your hand on your forehead. You're dealing with 100 billion apples, and that's some apples. Now, a new concept of human nature develops. You know, wow, if we have 100 billion neurons, and each neuron is like a microcomputer, hey, who programmed your brain? Who programmed my brain? Why do I speak English instead of Chinese? Why do I, you know, what are, now I say, oh yeah, my mind are the programs. And who, who, who popped these floppy, sloppy metal disks into my A drive and B drive when I was too young to realize what they were doing to me, huh? 
the notion that maybe you can reprogram your brain starts to develop. But a wonderful egalitarian, uh, humanitarian concept of human nature develops, and you think of us as basically the, the carriers of this enormous knowledge information processing equipment, 100 billion apples. It's the ultimate of, um, you know, the old biblical and the old mystical notions of human nature as being almost divine because we've got this incredible computational knowledge information processing equipment. It's a leveler. It's the ultimate leveler. You know those uh, kids in, in Ethiopia, you see them starving there, or the kids starving in the slums of Calcutta? Hey, listen, their bodies may be in ruin, but their brains... You know, the brain's the last thing to go. The body, you know, the brain will knock off a foot or a, a finger, but the brain keeps itself going, you know, with the sugar the last, the last, the last breath of oxygen that you ever breathe, uh, your heart, the last squeeze of blood that your heart sends up is not going to go to your legs or your arms or even to your favorite genital organs. It's going to go to your brain because... The, the, the brain, well, you can, I think you follow the neuropolitics there. <laughs> okay, now, if the kid in the slums of Calcutta has this enormous, you know, that, that's a $50 trillion worth of equipment that he or she's got there. I mean, they're wonderful. That, well, maybe we can start uh, learning how to program this equipment. Maybe instead of using people's bodies as they did in an agricultural society, or using people as machines as we do in an industrial society, if we think of people as carrying this extraordinary knowledge processing around with them, we get, oh, you know, is it, yeah, in other words, you know, you can't really be mad at anyone anymore. You know, uh, you know, uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini, he's got a perfect brain. He may, at least he's got uh, 70 billion left, right? I know it's hot in those deserts over there. Uh, people like Chip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan and Walter Mondale, and, they got perfect brains. It's the programming that messes it up. This <laughs> uh, is ultimately optimistic, ultimately uh, humanitarian, ultimately pluralistic notion, it seems to me. Now, <clears throat> I must say, I want to say a few more words about something that's very necessary if you're going to understand what's going to happen in the next 15 years. Uh, the people that run things, top management, naturally uh, so busy running things that they don't anticipate uh, new things that come up. You get a new <laughs> you get a new technology and either want to use it to, to go to war with or to tax people for and so forth. Uh, so that nobody really understands what a computer is. And I'm sure there are many of you in this crowd, as I was about a year ago, who are computer phobics. You know, I mean, you, you, uh, all during the 60s and 70s, I hated computers. Computers are uh, the mainframes of IBM, uh, IRS, CIA, KGB. Uh, they were going to mutilate us and punch us and spindle us. You remember that. Uh, and uh, we had no access to it. You had to have a clearance and uh, an IBM card. Uh, the, the very word computer meant someone was trying to invade our privacy, manipulate us, uh, control us. Uh, and if, in fact, they were so smart, that was even worse, because all that smartness uh, collected in top management and bureaucracy, didn't, it didn't feel good at all, did it? 
And uh, even today, with the onset of the of the personal computer, the the factory people, it's all we've got to be very kind to each other and very compassionate and naturally. The people in the industrial society, particularly those who are profiting from the industrial smoke sex society, are going to impose the values and the language of that culture upon the new culture. So the very word IBM, for example, means international business machine. One thing it ain't, it's not a machine. You know, a machine is a thing with, with, with replicable parts. You're talking about an electronic system. Uh, you know what the word computer really means? Look it up in the dictionary when you go home. My dictionary, I think it's the Oxford Heritage one, and computare, the word putare means in Latin to think. So a computer is something you think with. A computer is something you think with. And then it goes on to say, a device which is used to perform repetitious tasks. <laughs> How factory can you get? or which is used in industry, like to, for oil refining, or is used in research, like for missiles and so forth. Uh, in other words, uh, uh, to a factory philosopher, a, a machine to think is a machine to perform many uh, repetitious tasks. But actually, when you think about it, a book, a good old paperback, wood pulp, rag and glue job. <laughs> Whether you don't remember that, they, they, print like that <laughs> uh, with ink. You can't change it. You can, we can do the book. It's not very interactive. You can, you can scroll on the margin, which I sometimes do. <laughs> you can try to write another book, but the author's not going to read it anyway. <laughs> not much interaction there. But even that book, even the good old rag and glue wood pulp book, uh, is a thinking machine. And God knows it's created this wonderful industrial society we have. But uh, if you think about a computer as being... Uh, a device for thinking, then what is a computer really? Now, we've been led to believe that even the personal computer is this enormous, enormous spaceship cabin of, of, uh, of metal and plastic. See, what do you think about a computer, what do you think? You think about that enormous television set, uh, terminal screen, right? Well, little dials here, and you get in color, you get all those graphs. <laughs> you know, it's all the TV commercials about computers, and it's all people looking around at those pie-shaped graphs, <laughs> like kitties playing pie. I mean, <laughs> all the, anyway, that's a digression. Uh, okay, but here's this terminal. Then you get a keyboard. Now, what does a keyboard and typing uh, have to do with, with thinking? All right, listen, I've come to really resent those three rows of QWERTY type, those Phoenician alphabet words. They are the Phoenicians, 4,000 4, B.C., they came up with alpha, beta, you know, alpha, yeah. Every time you go to, you look at a computer keyboard, I don't care whether it's an Atari, or Commodore 64, or IBM, whatever it is, and you see that keyboard, think of three rows of Phoenician soldiers with spears trying to keep you away. <laughs> from really understanding that this is a, a mini-brain or a mini-mind to think with. The, uh, I think you get my point, that uh, to the industrial mentality, bigger is better. And indeed, the fifth generation of uh, artificial intelligence, I don't know if you follow this, but our government, the Japanese government, is spending bill, over a billion dollars each, probably more, to what they call thinking machines. It's called fifth, fifth generation uh, parallel processing, and their ideas is so predictable. 
if we can get a building that goes from yo to there with uh, all this computational equipment and we spend a billion dollars, it's got to be smart, right? That's the old fallacy of the mechanical age. Actually, uh, an electronic computer thinking device is a chip, which you might call a micro brain because it operates in the same uh, language that your brain operates on. You know, the brain doesn't speak English. <laughs> I know this is, I might be anti-Anglophile here. Uh, the brain doesn't speak Yiddish or even Gaelic. The brain speaks in clusters of offline possibilities, probabilities. It's called quantum physics, called quantum mechanics. That's, your brain operates that way. Uh, so a computer is a chip and a screen and it's some kind of device. Actually, all you need is something to say yes. You don't even have to say no because no is when you're not saying yes, right? All you need is a chip and a screen and some device to move that thing around on the, on the screen. Now, all of us in this room, I know, are concerned and depressed and worried about a very fretful and dangerous thing that we see happening in America and the world, a division into haves and have-nots, some of the representations of that in that last election. Uh, we look around the world, we see this haunting. We go look at Ethiopia, we see that increasingly, my gosh, if all my kid, he's 11 years old, everything he knows, they're out pirating software, I mean, they, uh, and, uh, the, but it, it's an upper middle class situation. What about the third world? What about the kids in the, uh, the uh, less fortunate, affluent neighborhoods who don't feel that computers like having a pair of Nikes? Naturally, every kid's got Nikes, every kid's got a computer, but not... What about this haunting, terrible division in American society of those that are getting smarter and thinking faster and learning to the new electronic literacy? And I tell you, we've just scratched the surface, see, of, 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 of how we're going to accelerate intelligence with this new device. But I know, I've been told by, and I, I talked to many engineers about this too, they say, yeah, it's certainly possible. That we could have a computer, size of Time magazine, the whole thing is a screen with a few buttons down at the bottom. You lift up the screen, the cover, the, you stick in your pocket and you go down, right down the street, go to high school, junior high school, with it, kindergarten. Inside you put your little, put your little, uh, programs. You can hook it up to a, to a modem, so you hook it up to a phone, so you could actually bring up the New York Times, you could bring up the Library of Congress, you could bring up, you know, through your motor, you know, you'd be at the beach with it, and a, a little, what's in a battery, and you could be, you could bring along uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica, War and Peace, and Playboy Magazine. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> also, once it's on a screen, once it's on a screen, you can change it, you can react to it, interact to it, you can cross it out, you, can, you become a co-author. Anyway, uh, it would cost, we got the estimates now down to about $80 for one of these pocket computers. Uh, mass produced, it would cost probably less than $40. Okay, now $40 I take as the, as the, as the crucial point because a pair of Nikes cost $40 now. Every poor kid has a pair of Nikes. And I'm sure even the most conservative, penny-pinching American would say, yeah, we want every American kid to have a pair of shoes, right? Well, one of your little pocket brains is going to cost less than a pair of Nikes. As a matter of fact, the only thing to do is to give them away. <gasps> what do you mean, give them away? That's bleeding heart liberal, right? 
No, no, no. Going to save the taxpayer thousands of dollars. At the present time, uh, the poorest kid in the United States who's forced by law to go to school, what, he or she is 16, how many thousands of dollars do we spend on textbooks for those kids? By the way, the textbooks, they probably don't read them, but uh, we're told that. Thousands of dollars will be spent by the poor taxpayer to level forests up in Canada, ship all that wood pulp down to Seattle where it's then converted into paper, and then ship and truck to Massachusetts where the textbook is printed and then shipped to the ghettos of barrios or the poor sections of, of LA and San Francisco and so forth, where they're not read. Uh, no, even the poorest kid would never steal another kid's uh, microbrains, like stealing a pair of second-hand shoes. Man, you don't do that. Uh, because it should be taken for granted in the United States of America, as the great vision of Jefferson and Franklin would remind us, that every American kid, just like you breathe, you're supposed to breathe the air, the water is free, there's basic food, every American kid has all the electrons he or she needs to keep the brain moving and changing. The information, information is the air and the water and the bread and the shoes of the future. Now, uh, all sorts of social psychological changes are going to occur. Okay, I've, uh, I've taken you in the last 40 or 50 minutes uh, from uh, the a age of feudalism and agricultural society through a very quick uh, trip through the industrial society to the future. Uh, there are obviously hundreds of detailed issues like just one for example everything we know about economics and property and proprietorship has got to be changed you can patent a book you can own a piece of equipment you can own land you can own a machine but obvious you cannot own clusters of electrons you can, talk about freedom of information. They don't, they're not talking about getting your FBI files from the government. Freedom of information means that information is basically free. You simply, at this point in time and in the future, you cannot monopolize patent or have uh, copyrights on clusters of, of uh, electrons. As soon as you take your book from a wood pulp print job and you put it onto a screen, you've lost the old time copyright. Now, it's no surprise to you. You know that the uh, been a big boom uh, in the last year on home videos. It turns out that lower middle class and working class Americans are getting these uh, VHRs and they're going to the rental stores and they're pirating them. And the most moral, boring and Christian uh, Americans instinctively know that the government has no right, you know, interfering with what you do in the privacy of your own home and one of your fooling around with a few electrons. Even though when they, when you've, you know, you've, you've read these, these uh, you know, movies, it says right in the beginning, you know, the FBI is watching you and don't you try to pirate this. But, good luck. Okay, uh, I suggest we take a five minute break now. We're going to come back and have a question. Uh, and I hope we can really get some interesting dialogue going because uh, my job is to stir you up a little bit, to challenge you, to... to uh... You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
And so he says, his job is to challenge you a little bit to, uh, to, uh. <laughs> and yes, uh, that's exactly where the tape cut off. But I think you can probably fill in the blank and say that Dr. Leary's job is to challenge you to think for yourself and to question authority. Now, uh, after three weeks, I've got a lot of things that I'd like to mention, but I'm going to save most of them until my next podcast, which uh, should be out before very long. Right now, however, I need to remind you, uh, along with our other fellow saloners who are listening to this podcast uh, soon after I post it, to be sure that you remember the Horizons Perspectives on Psychedelics Conference, uh, going to be held in New York City next weekend. That's uh, September 24th through the 26th. 2010, in case you are uh, hearing this sometime in the distant future. But even if you are hearing this uh, years from now, uh, maybe you should Google Horizons Perspectives on Psychedelics, because uh, my guess is that this important conference will uh, still be going strong. Here are uh, just a few of the speakers in the lineup, uh, the ones actually that you've heard from here in the salon before. Uh, John Perry Barlow, author, lyricist for The Grateful Dead, uh, essayist, and uh, co-founder of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, or EFF. Also, Eric Davis, uh, who's an author and uh, been a featured speaker at the Planque Norte Lectures at Burning Man. Every year we've held them, actually. And uh, also Dale Pendell, uh, who's an author and theobotanist, ethnobotanist, and poet. And uh, you can hear him in our podcast number 55. There are also uh, about a dozen or so other speakers who will be there, and I'll put a link to uh, their website along with the program notes for this podcast, which uh, you can find via psychedelicsalon.org. Now, one of the most important things that will happen at that conference is that uh, a whole lot of people are going to find quite a few of the others, which is uh, becoming more important every day. In fact, uh, here's a comment about finding the others that uh, Ian posted in the comments section of the program notes for podcast number 242. Lorenzo, first of all, thank you so much for the Psychedelic Salon. I've been listening for about one year and gobbling up the goodies voraciously. What you do is extremely important in my opinion, not just for all of us listening now, but for those in the future to have access to all the great info here. And as a little aside, I should mention that uh, thanks to Bruce Damer, the uh, Psychedelic Salon podcasts are going to be uh, backed up on the Internet Archive at archive.org. And uh, that'll take place over a period of time here. Continuing with uh, Ian's post, he said, I just wanted to encourage your thoughts on any way of meeting the others using Meetup or whatever. I have recently moved to Sonoma County and am hoping to get connected with the tribe who I expect are flourishing in this area. I know that you're extremely busy, but I would very much appreciate any info about events or ways of connecting with the others. Thank you again. Be well, my brother, Ian. Well, thanks for that, Ian. And uh, in future podcasts, I'll uh, continue passing along some of uh, any new ideas, actually, that our fellow saloners come up with for finding the others. As I've said before, in my own case, I guess that... uh, Probably 90% of my close psychedelic friends have all been people that I've met at conferences like Horizons. But uh, we still need to find better ways to make connections for those of us who aren't close enough to a conference to make it or who can't afford to attend one right now. And the absolute fact of the matter is that uh, we are everywhere, you know, we being the worldwide psychedelic community. And uh, by the way, that includes our friends who 
have no intention of ever trying these medicines, but uh, who nonetheless are interested in the ideas that our fellow psychonauts seem to bring back from their travels into entheospace. And uh, one of the others, one of my new friends that I've just met, is uh, someone I met in Oregon last week. He's a uh, singer, songwriter, who I'm sure uh, you'll be hearing from a lot more, uh, particularly in the West Coast Festival circuit. His name is Alcyon Massive, and uh, his musical style is hip-hop, reggae, and psychedelic. <laughs> Quite an interesting mix, don't you think? I'll uh, put a link to his MySpace page in the program notes for this podcast, but, uh, but right now I'm going to sign off and then play a song of his that he entertained us with uh, after dinner one night. So, for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. And now here is Alcyon performing Spirit is Real from his CD titled Dreaming the World Awake. Yeah. <laughs>